and welcome to today's event, Can Women's Movements Save the World? I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, CEO of New America and a partner of Arizona State University at the Center on the Future of War. I'm also a professor of the practice at the Thunderbird School. From 2009 to 2011, when I served as the Director of Policy Planning at the State Department under Secretary Hillary Clinton, I remember a UN General Assembly where she convened all the women heads of states and foreign ministers around the world. There were about 40 women in that room. Secretary Clinton and all those leaders have been pushing global women's rights from the top down, but those movements, transnational feminist movements are also growing from the bottom up, which is part of what we'll talk about today. We are pleased to partner with Zocalo Public Square in bringing this special event to your screens. Now I'd like to introduce Moira Shoury from Zocalo. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Welcome to Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. In the words of the great Dolly Parton, if you don't like the road you're walking on, start paving another one. Our moderator for today's event, Mia Parrish, is someone who has paved her own road in the world of publishing and journalism. She was the president and publisher of the Pulitzer Prize winning Arizona Republic. Before that, she ran the Kansas City Star and led expansive media organizations in Minneapolis, Boise, and San Francisco. She was the first woman and the first person of color to hold those positions. And now Mia is the Sue Clark Johnson Professor in Media Innovation and Leadership at ASU. Over to you, Mia. about. Um, you know, I, I think let's start with there's there's a lot of research that validates the notion that women are better in a crisis. Um, that when women are in charge, when women are the leaders, whether it's of a company or a unit or government, that they perform better than men, but that that difference increases when you're in a crisis, um, whether it's an enduring one like challenges in traditional media or episodic like the pandemic. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And let me just add my uh, happy International Women's Day. Welcome to everybody. And thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be in conversation with you, Mia. So thank you. Um, to your point, 
there is extensive research that shows that women, women often are, are uh, more even-handed leaders. And what we've seen in this pandemic is that the countries that have women at the helm, New Zealand comes to mind, of course, um, as does Germany, have really taken lead in uh, addressing this pandemic head on. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is a concept that's called the glass cliff. Um, and that's a concept that was actually developed um, in the UK um, around uh, women who became CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And the research found that women were often put in the CEO position of companies when they were failing. And this is why they call this the glass cliff, because women were often brought in when a company was failing so that if they turned it around, it was like, well, she got lucky. But if they didn't, they were often set up to fail. And so a lot of research has actually come out showing that this is not really relegated just to Fortune 500 companies. But you see women often taking leadership positions in a crisis, which could perhaps be why women are well equipped and well prepared, because the run up to these leadership positions has been a series of glass cliffs. Mm -hmm. And you see people, you know, talking about the difference that, you know, is it, is there really a female leadership style, you know, so how does that play into the idea of a feminist movement, you know, changing the world that you've got, um, what sort of characteristics are you seeing that would validate that, you know, not just sort of the experience of, we get left with the broken toys, which is what I call it, yeah. <laughs> you get to you get to lead when things are going south. <laughs> right. Well, I think, look, I think feminist organizing brings with it a series of um, really socially transformative um, components. Uh, so what you've seen is that there have been feminists organizing around the world to bring about some of the most meaningful social change. So we could look at examples from um, Nigeria um, and the campaign hashtag bring back our girls, which was a feminist movement that was truly transnational, um, which helped fight Boko Haram. Right. So um, and then, you know, nearby, you've got um, like looking at like when you say it's feminist, like what makes that a like. Yeah. So it was, it was actually, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, so here's what makes it feminist. It was, it was led by women, um, led in the underground. Um, now other characteristics that make it feminist is this real feminist solidarity, um, that there are a set of core values that make up feminism values like justice, equity, inclusion, um, taking apart the dynamics of difference and power. These are all core feminist values. Right, I mean, that's a, you know, what's good for the community, right? That's exactly, like, yep, inclusion, exactly. And so you've seen this real intergenerational feminist organizing. Women from across generations and across borders and boundaries are coming together to push back against enemies that even the, some of the most powerful military uh, can't combat, right? And what, what's special about it? Because, you know, a lot of people would just say, oh, it's just a movement, right? Like what makes it a feminist movement? What makes it more effective because it's a feminist movement? Um, what's different about it, I think is yeah. important. Yeah, that is important. So I think what a couple of things differentiate it. First, that solidarity is, is real. So one of the things that you'll notice with feminist organizing is that everyone wants to to have the credit be shared. So you don't have one talking, you know, one very loud voice talking, 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 but rather that these movements are diffuse and they're intentionally diffuse, right? Mm -hmm. The power is shared, the spotlight is shared, but it's also so that they can operate and leverage the underground, which is where women of color have been driven 
for centuries, really. So now they're using the underground, these spaces that were used to, let's say, smuggle people to safety, et cetera. They're using these spaces. They're coming together in a solidarity that really has kind of diffuse leadership so that they can strategize about the next move and coming at it from different angles. So these are some of the things that really set it apart. Because it isn't entirely just women-centric movements. You know, they aren't just things, they aren't just reproductive rights or, you know, I mean, for example, Black Lives Matter founded by three women in response to um, police violence against African-American men. Um, you know, and a lot of people talking about Stacey Abrams having credit for leading the um, Georgia Senate race, um, uh, and, you know, wins their victories. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So how is it, you know, what is it about those kinds of things? Is that that diffusion of power, that collaboration, or is it the networking, you know, what makes that? Well, and it, let me just add some international examples yeah. to what you just pointed out too, right? So you have, for instance, um, groups of women who've been organizing in Syria um, to push back against ISIS and have actually started to defeat ISIS. And Gail Lemon has written extensively about this. She has a new book out called Daughters of Kobani that really chronicles the fight of these women-led um, groups who are resisting. Um, and so that's that's resisting terrorism there. You know, um, in Iran, you have had women's, you know, feminist groups organizing to push back against the morality police, right? Which again, is not just a, a women's issue, right? Mm -hmm. But an issue of justice and equity. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I think one of the things that that all these movements have in common is that they're all part of this new feminism that many of us are calling justice feminism, right? So that, you know, previous waves of feminism. Another iteration of. Yeah, it's this, like, exactly. Yeah. So previous iterations of feminism have maybe been focused on care or career. So it's been care feminism or career feminism. Now we have justice feminism. And that is basically a uniting call that brings all these movements together uh, in order to fight for justice, like Black Lives Matter, the fight against ISIS. Mm -hmm. Other examples abound. Right, or even um, you know, Greta Thunberg and climate change. I mean, that is- Climate justice, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Greta's fighting for environmental justice. And you know, I, I think the other thing about feminist movements is that because of the core values of feminism, um, the absolute link between health health justice, social justice, and climate justice has been central to what feminist organizing has been about. Now, 2020 laid that case bare for everyone, but this is something that has been central to feminist organizing for decades. Right, and I mean, these are core feminist values. So they're essentially feminist in framing and thinking, whether you're looking at police reform or sexual violence, which is something you've studied extensively in trafficking, like they're interconnected. Um, and what would, in this next gen, you know, uh, justice feminism, what does feminist foreign policy look like? You know, because I now you're at this point in the evolution of it, you know, you're not just squawking or you're not just protesting, you're actually helping make change happen for big group. I mean, I, I, that's one of the things that really interests me about the idea of transnational feminism too. It's not just person to person, you know, saving one thing, but you're really creating this broader movement um, to affect positive change. So. And, and, and I would add that, that that broader movement is really about structural change, 
right? Mm -hmm. So that it's not about a quick fix or yeah. like a fad movement, right? It's about that lasting, long lasting structural change. Now the feminist foreign policy, we've seen some examples starting let's say in Sweden, right? Uh, in 2014, and they said, well, feminist foreign policy is one that centers women, that centers women's issues. And then you had the next iteration in the two countries that border the United States, Canada and Mexico. Um, and my colleague uh, Magda Hinojosa in the School of Politics and Global Studies has written extensively about this, where in 2017, you had Canada and Mexico saying, okay, let's do feminist foreign policy kind of 2.0, which says, okay, well, what are the core values of feminism? And now as justice feminism has taken root, I think the flowers of those seeds are gonna blossom in a feminist foreign policy that is about justice, equity, and inclusion. Something else that just makes, I think is interesting is these tend to be like big, hairy things. You know, you're not trying to solve small problems. You're talking about sex trafficking and climate change and you know these huge things. And what can transnational feminist movements teach us about um, how to do a better job with these long range issues? Now that's because that can be an issue certainly in the system, right? Nobody wants to solve this incredibly broken thing, immigration or whatever. Um, what can we learn from them? So a couple of things I would say, I think first thing we can learn from them is that they do their research and that they're ground up, right? So they're, they're grassroots, they're bottom up, they're, they're not top down. So feminists, you know, organizers have been working in the underground, planting those seeds. They're the tillers of the soil, if you will, right? They've been planting the seeds. They've been trying to find ways to reshape the underground, but it's been from the ground up. So they do their research they know the effect on the ground. I think one of the biggest challenges, for example, with trafficking, mm -hmm. right, is that you have policies made by people who have no idea what the lived experience is. And so you have this dramatic disconnect between policy and lived experience. So, you know, feminist organizers, they do their homework. They know what the lived experience is about. And they also know that you need multiple disciplinary perspectives, multiple trainings. You gotta bring different people to the table, people with different types of expertise in order to solve some of the world's most pressing and wicked problems. We've got those huge issues. Do you see a commonality um, in what sort of starts, you were talking about that lived experience and you know, give, informing your policy decisions and you know, sort of pointing you in a direction. Um, I had the privilege to hear Nadia Murad speak um, last year and she, you know, Nobel Prize honoree for her work um, protecting her people and survivors of sexual violence. And she obviously, she talks about being an, um, an unwilling, unwitting um, justice warrior, right? You know, hers was from this horrible experience of being kidnapped and trafficked. Um, do you see that sort of commonality? Is that something that's um, you know, the experience that you have that is informing these movements. And uh, is that, how does that fit into uh, yeah. what it looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that these, um, these moments of oppression and absolute fear and terror are um, formative for many feminists, right? Which is, I think, why they take to the underground. Um, so some of these most powerful movements are springing up in some of the most unlikely places. And that's why I always point to, you know, places like Iran, right? Which has had this very powerful, very successful feminist organized movement. And that has come because people have been 
really challenged by the oppression, right, of the of the regime and have many have, you know, these very painful stories that have driven them into the underground. And so they've tried to turn it on its head um, and say, well, how can we use this space? How can we use our our numbers, our collective experience, our shared experience to push back on, on, on these really challenging, you know, forces. And the numbers game extends beyond places like, you know, Iran or, or Syria. I mean, South Korea is another really great example of that, right? When the pushback, um, you know, in the follow-up to Me Too, you had feminists organizing to come out en masse and say, like, this is not okay. Um, we saw something similar in India um, with the repeal of Section 377, um, mm -hmm. which was the, you know, um, criminalization of, of, of homosexuality. And you just had people organizing, coming out in numbers and saying that this oppression will not stand, but they need the collective. They need to organize in the underground and they get that safety in those numbers and in the collective. So I think that that shared formative experience that you're talking about is really important. And, and you and I both have experienced this in your history. Um, and your background, obviously, that's you know part of your family history. Uh, that battles, so same with mine. Um, you know what what does motivate you? Where do you find the sort of wherewithal to keep at it? Because we've been doing this a long time, right? <laughs> and the generations before us were doing have been doing this for a long time. So. I know, and it's sort of like, when is it going to get easier? You know, I think in my green room interview, um, I, you know, I think Sarah asked me a question where it was like, well, if you could time travel, you know, back or forward to to any, you know, any any time, when would it be? I said I would travel a hundred years forward to see what became of all this work that we did. <laughs> Did this, these seeds blossom? No, I mean, I think you're right. You know, I, 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 in many ways was born into the underground, right? I was, you know, I was born to, yeah, I was born to a family who were the keepers of the underground, right? And, and members of, you know, members of my family, um, you know, crawled across the border from Iran to Kuwait, you know, in sheepskin, um, you know, and so I think there's something about coming from those generations of the tillers of the soil, the keepers of the underground that make you feel like, yeah, you got to keep fighting it. And, you know, we see that here, you know, I think the Underground Railroad, for instance, in the United States, that's an American institution, right? And so I, I, I would imagine that the generations that have, you know, felt like they're the keepers of that underground, um, one of the things you're seeing now is that those undergrounds are starting to unite. That's um, going to, you know, that years and years into this, you know, we find each other or whatever, you know, those, that next generation starts to unite and then accelerate that change, you know, was, what are some of your favorite examples of that? You study this. And... Yeah. You know, I do think bring back our girls was a really powerful uh, example of that because yeah, it was a group of women in Nigeria. Yeah. And then they actually had former first lady, Michelle Obama got involved. Um, a group of feminists in Italy got involved, feminists who had been living in and working in the underground got involved. So, you know, and, and they were able to bring back, you know, most of the kidnapped young women. And so that is one of my favorite examples, um, which most people know about. Um, an example that many people don't know about um, is it comes from some of my own work on, on trafficking. And I had the great pleasure to work with a group of Malagasy women, women from Madagascar. Um, who had been, you know, experiencing trafficking to, to the Middle East. And these feminist networks organized from Kuwait to Switzerland to South Africa to get all the women who had been incarcerated in Kuwait, the Malagasy women who had been incarcerated in Kuwait um, with their babies, got them all home. 
And that was, that's something that not that many people know about. It wasn't on Twitter or on social media, but it was a great example of these transnational feminists coming together, sharing their undergrounds to get women and their children in this case home safely. And then the, the later sort of the epilogue of that was these same women were able to fight to change the policies uh, in their home country to make it, to make migration safer for other women. So what sort of policies, like what would you be changing? Yeah, so they were, they, um, so the, you know, initially the government in Madagascar had created a series of, you know, uh, training programs. They said that if women want to migrate abroad to, to work, they have to go through a one-year training program. Well, many women didn't have that kind of time, didn't have that kind of money. And so they were getting themselves into situations where they would be smuggled to the Middle East, often, you know, illegally, um, because the legal channels were not up to them. So, it's, you know, one of the things my you know, interviewees often say, well, they close the door, but then we open the window. So we have to jump, which is much less safe. So um, these, these women were able to go actually to parliament and say, you know, you've got to, you've got to pull back this rule. And you've also got to start to engage in multilateral talks with, let's say, Middle Eastern countries who are receiving countries of this labor and say, listen, if you're going to have our countrywomen or our countrymen come and labor there, we need to set some standards. We need to set some parameters. For instance, mandatory time off, no confiscation of passports, et cetera. So this is just one example of that. Yeah, no, I love examples like that where you're actually you know, following through to resolve the end problem, right? You know, with the people who are going to have to deal with it and live with it and manage it. So, you know, you're seeing more and more. And why is this taking so long that now, just now sort of transnational feminist movements are gaining steam? What took so long? Yeah, you know, I think I think it's been just a confluence of things. I think we're definitely in a moment right now. We're in a moment and where, now, right? You know, what's <laughs> yeah. Well, we're in, you know, it's and these roots have been laid for a long time, and then we had you know we had Black Lives Matter and and powerful feminist organizing there. We had Me Too, and that ignited you know kind of a a, a revolution around the world. Yeah, exactly, and so. I think, you know, success begets success, right? And so as people looked over their shoulders and said, oh, look what they're doing there. Oh, maybe I could do that too. Um, and they start to talk more and they start to borrow strategies from each other. You know, one of the most interesting things for me as someone who's done field work in Dubai is actually just going to Dubai and seeing groups of women and feminists, so women and men, from all over the world come together and share strategies of how to combat, you know, oppression. And that I think hadn't been happening because people, first of all, weren't as mobile before as they are now. They weren't as networked as they are now. I mean, look at us, we're able to have this conversation. We've right. got people coming in from all over the world listening to us today, which is wonderful. Um, but this obviously couldn't have happened three decades ago. So okay. there's momentum, which we've got to capitalize on, definitely. There, we're, there are, you know, the case has been made in many ways, right? We've been making this case. And now I think the case is starting to be made that we're gaining some traction. So now we have to move to the next step. The case has been made. Now we've got to make the change. So what does that look like? What's a fully scaled transnational feminism world? look like <laughs> well maybe it's it's girls running the world <laughs> um i you know in an ideal world no i'm kidding um i think it's it's a it's a world where justice really is at the heart of everything that we do 
And so that we have policies, whether it be foreign policies or domestic policies that ask questions of justice first, that ask questions of, well, how does this impact the people about whom we're legislating? What is the lived experience of this? Um, for our and, lives. Yeah, exactly. You know, cause that's part of the idea too, is looking forward and women being so forward looking, you know, caring whether we leave behind a decent planet Exactly. Blair, whatever. Right. And and we need to do a better job of listening to and hearing the, the next generations because they're seeing things that we haven't been seeing, just like we were seeing things that, you know, and that's why the intergenerational component of this new feminism gives me a lot of hope um, because it is generations coming together uh, mm -hmm. instead of instead of fighting with each other. And that that kind of joining together, I think, is in some ways feminine, you know, that collaboration and the connections and all of that. Um, but you mentioned a big, very important point. Um, feminists aren't always women, right? And the, I think that's been a change too in the last couple of years, you know, in my opinion, having more and more allies and having more and more people willing to admit, you know, I, I am a feminist, whether you're, you know, that, that's not a dirty word. Um, so what, what, is, what have you seen that's given you heart in that? But I'd also encourage everybody, be an ally. Hello, I can't do this one. Exactly. You know, exactly. Well, I think, you know, part of that, the whole case being made, I think one of the important components of that was this notion that you realize that, you know, if, if you're, first of all, I think we have to, uh, um, there are a lot of non-binary folks who are part of this. So I think that's a really important component. Absolutely. I think when it comes to talking about men, the case has been made that this could be your daughter. This is the world your daughter inherits, your sister inherits. This is your mother, like, you know, and, and, and taking it beyond like what we were talking about earlier, taking it beyond just it being about reproductive rights and saying, no, actually feminism is about a more just world. I think that's helped gain a lot of traction. I see that with my students and you probably do too. You know, our students at ASU, I would say that, you know, we have people of all genders interested in feminism because mm -hmm. people of all genders are interested in justice. And right. so as a result, you've got people coming together and saying, oh, wow. So feminism is a vehicle for bringing about the change, right? That it's it's something that's been in the works that these are these are roots that have been going across borders and oceans, um, and how do we help that to flourish? And and you're right, we can't do it alone. Right? You know, I, I um, did a thing on women's leadership, and somebody asked, you know, what would you give advice to your younger self about? You know, what did you do right um, to be a great to be successful? And honestly, it was accidentally marrying a feminist. You know, I, I have this really strong, wonderful husband who is really wonderful and supportive and not competitive and is a justice first kind of person, you know, and you don't even, and that was really important. Like that's important to be successful to have those people by your side too. Yeah. Like just, I mean, that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Marty Ginsburg, you know? Um, but I think the other thing, you know, when, when people ask me, you know, what, what makes women leaders successful? One of the things I say is that we lift as we climb. Right. So we were, we're, you know, true feminist leaders, male or female or non-binary are not going to just step on people to go up, but rather are going to lift as, as, as we climb. You know, that's another thing that the research shows that on a team, that the whole team is better when you have two or more women, like the men are better, the women are better. All of either isn't 
as good and you know having at least two women whether it's on a board or it's on a team doing whatever mm-hmm. that we're all better off so you were saying like women run the world it's like no you know justice minded and many women running the world <laughs> justice minded people run the world that's the optimal Right. right. That people who think about justice first. And when, when we say justice, it's it's an analysis of justice that's rooted in an analysis of power. Right. Right. And, you know, and it is a power play. We've talked about this. You know, I, th- I think that's one of the reasons it's taken so long, because justice shifts power. Right. And, you know, in finding equality and finding that, you know, so there's there's been a pull and a push in, you know, a negative way against these movements. Um, do you think that people are starting to see the benefit to all, like you were talking about? Is that a change as well? I, you know, it depends on the part of the world that we're talking about. I think here in the United States, we're finally starting to see it. Part of that though, is that we have had that, this triple pandemic, you know, in the last year, right? We've had the, the health, you know, the viral pandemic of, of COVID, the re-rearing of the um, social pandemic of racism. And then the the climate emergency pandemic, right? So, and our pandemic well, and of inequality. I mean, women have gotten lost ten years of economic growth in the workplace. Yeah, and so I think everyone's like taken a moment to say, "Wait a second, we can't keep going like this. We just cannot keep going this way." And so that has also helped the case to be made. So, if why do you think we need this new feminism? What do you think is the I, you know, I think, I think because, because we can't keep, we can't live in a world where we have a triple pandemic and women are set 10 years back and people of color are disproportionately affected and dying. And, you know, the world is burning. Like we, we, we cannot do that. Right. That's, I don't think that's right for the next generation. It's not right for our current generation. And, you know, we need new models of leadership. To, to, to get us out of this kind of a situation. And we need new ways of knowing, right? That's, that's why we're educators. We need new epistemologies. We need, we need new voices to be our, our guiding lights. We need, you know, one of the, the projects that we're working on at, at ASU is looking at indigenous storytelling. We need to hear the stories of how people connect to the, to the earth so that we can heal the earth. We need to think about, you know, I'm Iranian, Nowruz is coming up, it's the Iranian New Year. Um, that's a time for reflection. Uh, it's a time when the earth is healing itself, but it begins with a festival of jumping over the fire. People jump over the fire, asking the fire to cleanse them of all the social and viral ills, right? So it's, you know- And your wealth and- yeah. Exactly, and, and so these are things that first, you know, Nauru's been celebrated for 3,000 years, right? So we've got to start taking these, these lessons seriously because look at the damage that we're doing. And there's so much that can be you know, healed, as you were saying, through looking at you know, lessons that we've already learned <laughs> the hard way. Yeah, the hard way often, yeah. Um, and that's why reflection, you know, one of the, you know, for me, when I was learning what feminist methodologies were, one of the first things I learned about were the twin concepts of reflexivity or self-reflection and positionality, being aware of your position or your power in any given circumstance or situation, right? And if everybody did that, if everybody took a moment to reflect on their position or their power in any given moment, just think about where we'd be. Mm-hmm. And, what you, and what good you could do with the power. 
Exactly. I mean, which again is the heart of this, of feminism and a feminist movement, right? Like how do you put goodness into the world? Exactly. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite examples of success in these movements? Yeah. So I, you know, I think, I, I think I was astonished to see the, some of the successes transnationally with me too. Um, I was astonished. Yeah. You know, in India, you saw people, people just being called to task and being called out and just this really horrible, like endemic to the culture abuse and misogyny. Exactly. And, 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 and South Korea, Japan, that was, you know, that outpouring and, and, and the fact that so many people were called out and, and actually forced out of office in so many parts of the world as a result of this, that to me has been a really powerful example. Um, I have been really inspired by the movements we've seen in Latin America, um, Mujeres en la Marcha in Chile and Argentina. And I, I know that, you know, abortion is, of course, more a women's issue, but it's also a reproductive justice issue. And the success that they've had has been inspiring, you know. You know, so, everything affects economies, you know, families affect everything, your ability to have a healthy community and education access. And you know, it's not not just a girl problem. Right. And, and then I would be remiss in, in not mentioning probably one of my favorite moments, which is the fact that we have a woman of color in the White House. So that intersectionality, and I know we're both wearing our pearls today. Um, exactly, right? Uh, you know, that is amazing that it's not only a woman, but a woman of color in the White House. I think that that, that path has been paved by feminist organizing for decades. Yeah, I mean, I think as someone who's a biracial daughter of an immigrant who fled a war-torn country um, for opportunity, you know, to see her, it was, it was just moving. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and to know that how long that was in coming, and um, I, I don't know about you, but I really had this sort of weepy moment um, to see that come to fruition and, and also to know that there are little girls and little boys who are gonna never know a time when there was not a woman in that role, you know, or a person of color, so. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I share that experience with you, Mia, my, my 10 year old daughter who, you know, her, like my kids are also biracial, you know, and daughters of sons are multicultural, you know, and uh, just everybody, we, we were just glued to the TV. I, I, when she was giving her speech, uh, outfitted in suffragette white and, I, you know, it was just before I knew it, there were just tears streaming down my face because I could suddenly see a very different future, mm -hmm. you know. And in that one sort of moment. Yeah. Um, and of yeah. course, so many others that are cascaded from that. And, yeah. you know, you were talking about how success begets success. Um, what's, what, what do you see ahead or what do you see going on that um, gives you hope? You know, I, I think just the fact that for instance, I was telling somebody uh, earlier today that this I've been I've been, you know, promoting International Women's Day for 20 years. Right. And I've been trying to get talks. This is the first year that I've been so busy. <laughs> right. right. No, I mean, you know, like everybody wants to talk about it this year. And I think that's phenomenal. That that in and of itself gives me hope. The fact that we that the two of us get to have this conversation today 
Anne Marie introduced us. I mean, Moira, it's just, it's just all it's, yeah, it's this all star lineup, you know, and, and I know we're both at ASU and we had a newsletter come out this morning and it was all the powerful women at ASU speaking about women's day. And it was like, yes, you know, and, and, and you're see you're starting to see pockets of it everywhere, kind of pop, pop everywhere. Um, you're, you're starting to see these successful moments where, you know, like the Arab Spring was a really powerful moment. And then now you're starting to see in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Egypt, the fruits of that labor popping up, right? Um, and and obviously throughout throughout Europe. Um, but but you're you know it's it's like the 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 path has been cleared in a way. So I'm just really excited to see you know what these movements are are going to bring about. And I do think that we have a role to play as the tillers of the soil now for mm -hmm. those who are trying to move it forward, that we have to keep that path open um, and, and not let it, not let it close. And link yeah. arms and all the, you know, all the things, but yeah. you're seeing so many um, people step into that fray and just sort of be, you know, hashtag seems natural, right. To, to be talking about it. Um, I was really, I felt like Sisyphus for a long time. I don't know about you. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, that rock just, what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and it's real, but so I, I love your example of Sisyphus because I've also felt that way. Like, oh, I'm too tired. You know, and like you, you know, that this experience that we've been through these fights, we've been fighting for all our lives, both of us yeah. really have been born into this. You know, I think I've also felt like Sisyphus but I like that example because now that rock is rolling, but let's make sure that it's, you know, that it, that we kind of allow that success to keep going, right? Because momentum you know, to the next mountain too, right? Right, because it's, I mean, that the, the, the biggest mistake that, that has been made is when people think, oh, feminism was successful and it, and it was over, right? And that happened after the 60s and the 70s. They're like, well, you know, you got birth control, yeah, you have everything you want, you can drive, you got the right, no, you know? And I think I think we need to not make that mistake again, for sure. And I think we need to think about this justice feminism and say, okay, what what is that next challenge, right? And how do we keep that momentum and bring more allies to them so that it's not so much of a lift the next time. Right, and more and more people are seeing the benefit to themselves as well as these things get, you know, they, they join in um to help the momentum what is the what is uh 3.0 4.0 what does that look like i don't yeah that's like a, that's a great question you know i think i mean i, I like not rolling back because that really is i mean that's a great reminder because we have you and i've seen that too right where you think you got it mostly done or solved and then my students are still having the same kind of problems that i had when i was absolutely you know, all yeah. the boys are in charge of the newspaper and you know, girls have to act like the boys to get Right, there. and 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 you know, how hard is it for women to get into leadership positions? Like if you analyze, you know, women at the top in different industries, how many? And then when you look at women of color, because I think intersectionality is so important here too, it's even like, it's just, you're starting to, so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, mm -hmm. I think we have to fight the, the false binaries that pit diversity against excellence. I mean, that's just the most ridiculous binary there is. Right. You've got to fight that. That's part of that rock moving forward. 
Um, and, and I think we also have to preserve that space of the underground. So what, what, what worries me sometimes is when, you know, you have groups like the Proud Boys or, you know, QAnon saying we are the underground. It's like, mm, no, not really, <laughs> you know, the, the underground is, is, is about progress. Right. You know? um, and overcoming, you know, dictators and about moving things forward in a positive way. Right. Um, so we have a ton of questions from the audience. Oh my goodness. Great. Jump over and start asking some of those. Um, one is, which countries do you think will be at the forefront of the transnational women's movement um, in the next couple of years? Well, that's a great question. So, I, you know, it's it, I. I wish I had a crystal ball. So, you know, I, I, I'm I'm as curious as to the answer to this question as, as you are. But but from my own research and from the the amount that I've been studying transnational feminist movements, if I had to guess, I would say it's some of the countries that we've talked about today. So, India. Definitely being, uh, you know, among them, South Korea, um, Iran. Uh, I definitely think we'll see a lot coming out of, you know, different parts of the Middle East as that dust starts to settle. Um, I do think Nigeria, definitely, um, uh, and you know, I think Canada and Mexico as well. Now, Canada, I'm going to set that aside because this doesn't fit with my other construct. But um, you know, you're talking about a lot of places with very patriarchal societies. Um, so what do you think the future of feminism holds? Yeah, and, and there are also countries in the global South, which I think is interesting. So, so, and I think that's important, right? Because being in the global South has given them a really robust analysis of power, right? Where it's like, I, you know, even the men in the global South understand power vis-a-vis -vis the global North. So I think that has actually helped bring about more allies. First of all, I think families are changing. So, you know, people, okay, you know, people talk about, um, you know, Iran as, as being incredibly patriarchal, um, but I would love to invite all of you to come have dinner, um, you know, with my parents or with most Iranian uh, families and you'll see the matriarchy is pretty strong. Um, yeah. and I, so I, yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so I think families are changing and people are starting to, say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the matriarch, not just at home, but you know, like we have a lot to contribute. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, I do think there's something to be said about though, about a lot of these countries being in the global South. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a lot of people asking versions of what can men do to be allies and how can they help? Great question. First of all, you're, men are already helping. Men are already great allies. So let me give credit where credit is due. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think listen, probably foremost, listen. The reflexivity and positionality that I talked about, I think as men begin to practice that more, that being self-reflective and saying, oh, wait, here's my positionality. You know, I, I, I have the great fortune to work with two uh, white male colleagues who, who are deans in, in the college with me. And they're both so great about taking a moment and saying, wait a second, I'm, I'm the white male in the Zoom room right here. Let me, let me pause and let's hear, you know? And I, so I think that as, as more people do that, I mean, that, that's what allyship is looking like. And it's also about amplifying the voices of those who can't always be heard or mm -hmm. can't always speak up. And what does that look like to you? You're, you know, asking for people to come speak or you're asking their opinion you're yeah you know i think i think having so for instance 
you know, when, when I was uh, Dean of a school of international affairs at the university of Den Denver, we said, okay, no more mantles, you know, like no more all male panels. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and also no more having just the token woman to talk about like soft policy, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, first of all, recognizing all genders as, as uh, authority figures when they are experts, right? So that's that breaking down that false binary of right. diversity. And talking about inclusion, right? Yeah. I mean, like, again, it's really at the heart of it, like all right. of Right. You know, justice for all, not just people who look like us or. Exactly. It's intersectional, right? So I think that amplification is about saying these these are these are you know voices that should be at the table, but also amplification can just be, you know, you're in a Zoom room, maybe somebody doesn't necessarily feel like they have the voice to say it. They may put it in the chat, but you can amplify that point. You can you know if somebody makes a a, a point, you can speak it louder knowing that you might have a position of privilege in that particular Zoom room. And those positions of privilege are changing every single minute of every single day. So it's just having that skill of, of being aware, you know, of, of your surroundings. No, absolutely. Um, a great question about how can we help bridge the digital gender divide, knowing that some girls already have obstacles to getting an education mm -hmm. um, and how do we help in that? Yeah, well, you know, I think we've seen some progress in that area as well. You know, I know acknowledging it really. I mean, that's yeah, like seeing that that's a problem. Yep, and and talking about you know who gets to have access and who doesn't, right? I think there is a digital divide, more mm -hmm. writ large, right? Who has access, who doesn't? Um, but yeah. I have been impressed with the the progress that's been made in parts of the world, like Iran, like Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. Where that's starting to that gap is starting to narrow. Sorry. No, I was just thinking where, you know, technology in a lot of ways has made it um, more difficult for women and, you know, social media and trolling and all sorts of things that have kind of brought out the worst in people. But um, technology has also given so much access. You know, we've got, especially in developing nations and especially in the kinds of um, countries near democracies, perhaps. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's brought access, but it's also brought accountability. So go. I think one of the most powerful things we saw in the aftermath of Me Too, and we saw this in, in, in the Arab Spring before that, is people using, and in Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, people using their phones to document and then spreading the information. That accountability that comes with the access has also been powerful. That's really interesting. And that we haven't, we didn't even talk about social media and, you know, what that means for these movements and how much do you think that's helped accelerate um, the work that's being done. Well, you, I mean, you made a good point that social media is also, of course, you know, er erected barriers. And yes, <laughs> so let's acknowledge that for sure. <laughs> but I do, you know, for instance, Iran's green movement, you know, in 2009, people nicknamed it the Twitter revolution. That wouldn't have happened without Twitter, right? That wouldn't have happened without social media. Um, and so much, um, you know, bring back our girls wouldn't have happened without social media. So, so many of, of the most successful movements we're seeing, it's because of social media. Um, but of course, you know, we have to take that with a, with a big grain of salt. Yeah, good, good and ill. You know, um, a lot of what people say is our differentiator research shows that are differentiators for success and for successful movements are empathy and vulnerability. Um, how do you keep that going once you have success, 
right? Like that humble and um, empathetic. Because when power switches, power can switch, right? Yeah. So I have to hold on to that and hold on to the momentum. You know, I'd say two things about that. I think, I think first, as power switches, right? I think practicing reflexivity and positionality becomes even more important. I mean, it has to be a daily, hourly practice, right? And so there, that awareness has to happen. But I think the other thing that has to happen is that solidarity has to be held intact. So one of the things that you'll see, one of the things that does threaten progress and some of these movements is when certain parts of the movement start to ascend to having power. And then the folks assume that just because they have power, they're no longer invested in the cause. And that causes a fracture between, between you know, or within the movement. So you have natural allies who just because they're in a position of power sometimes aren't seen as natural allies. And so I do think that that, that can be a threat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and you see that with, you know, um, women who've become, you know, uh, very successful in, let's say, television, right? You've got that phenomenon of, of incredibly successful women writers, you know, women in media, um, that there's this sense of, well, now you're disconnected from me. And it's like, no, they, these are still powerful allies. And we have to keep that solidarity intact. You know, I love that idea of solidarity. And as we talked about racial justice and so many things that have been going on, one thing that I, as you know, member of a community of color, um, have been mourning and trying to figure out is the idea of, you know, it's kind of human nature. When you rise up, you step on whoever's coming in behind you. You know, you've seen that with immigration, with waves of immigrants, and um, certainly in pretty prevalent in terms of racial divides, ethnic divides. Um, what do you think about feminist movements that could be different, you know, and be a better more continuous, you know, we're still lifting up others as we rise. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we have to be in that intentionality has to be yeah. there, right. So that we have to remember that we need to lift as we climb. Mm -hmm. um, but we also need to create networks of, of trust so that those who we are trying to lift are also, <laughs> we're not dragging them to sort of beat this metaphor, you know, uh, it's, it's like, well, we can lift if people are, are willing to come with, but not if there's a distrust. So I think that we have to continue to nurture, nurture that trust. And that's a process that has to be continuously nurtured, right? Um, that, that solidarity isn't something that happens overnight, nor is it something that we can count on continuing untended. So we have to keep being intentional. We have to tend that. We have to cultivate that, that trust so that we can lift as we climb. Right. And someone's asked what motivated you to be part of this event and, and why do you think it's important to talk about it? I'd say also what motivated you to do this in the first place? I know you said you were born to it and so was I, but you know, what, what made you decide to make that your life? You know, I, th I think, I think the international component is really important to me um, because I think too often for, for me, when I was growing up, you know, as you know, immigrant in the United States and learning about about feminism, it was very US centric. And um, I really wanted to bring the imp incredibly powerful work that feminists are doing around the world to the table because that is, they are often eclipsed, right? That they are like Sisyphus, but in a shadow rolling up that rock, right? It's like they're invisibilized, they're erased, they're eclipsed. and and. I think it's so important to, to shine a light, to shine a spotlight 
on the meaningful social transformation that women around the world and feminists around the world are bringing about, because that actually is going to be the type of social change we're going to need in the world. I actually really do believe that. So we have to, but we have to be able to shine a spotlight in these parts of the world where, you know, when you talk to somebody, I, I remember when I, uh, five years ago, I was supposed to give a talk on Iranian feminism and I walked into the room and somebody goes, isn't it an oxymoron? Like, how can there be feminists in Iran? And I was like, okay, this is this really where we are? You know, uh, and so, you know, we've got to, we've got to break past that. We've got to break past that. We've got to celebrate because when we erase them, that makes their work even harder. So we have to celebrate them and show our allyship. That gives them fuel to fight, to continue to fight for the change that 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 we that you know that we need. What do you think are the best resources for people to be able to stay on top of this and stay connected to the transnational feminist movement? Are there things you read or you know follow on Twitter? Um, well, first, let me say Ms. Magazine has done an amazing job of keeping that transnational lens. Um, Ms. has actually been at the forefront of fighting for Nasrin Sutudeh, who's the Iranian human rights lawyer who has been wrongfully imprisoned now for many years. And actually, Ms. has broken stories about Nasrin when other media outlets haven't at all. So, you know, I think that there are some really powerful feminist um, outlets that, that really are trying to bring that transnational lens. But I would also just say, you know, read, read books that, that, that aren't only set in the United States, right? I mean, read, read books that, that talk about the connections, right? That, you know, um, and, and also I think the other thing I would say is, you know, um, that amplification is important. You know, one of the things that for a while frustrated me and, and maybe Mia, you can relate to this, but every time I saw somebody on CNN or on TV talking about Iran, it was a man. And about 50% of the time, that man had never been to Iran. And it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, hello, could, could we, you know, could, could we have this conversation a bit more broadly? Um, so that amplification, I think, is pretty important. Uh, and, you know, we're in that part of the world. And could you speak to feminist movements in Muslim-majority countries like Pakistan and well, yeah. Yeah. where that looks... It looks different and it's, it has other layers. Um, yes. And, and, and we, what we see with, you know, Malala Yousafzadeh in Afghanistan, it's intergenerational as well. Right. Um, but it does look different. Right. So it's not going to be, you know, bra burning in the streets for lack of a better straw man. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's not going to be, you know, one of the feminist groups that got a lot of attention in, in Europe was of course, you know, Pussy Riot. Right. So that, but you're not going to have that kind of feminism, right. It's going to be a much more subversive feminism. Now, you know, in my work on Iran, you know, the sexual revolution that was happening in Iran was so interesting to me because this was feminists organizing and saying, okay, Here's a regime that has come to power under a fabric of morality and controlling women's bodies. So we're gonna speak back to that regime by using our bodies, by wearing red lipstick, by pushing the veil millimeter by millimeter back, right? So these are things that maybe from the outside we wouldn't see as a feminist movement, but you would better believe they have pushed back on that regime in ways that no other group or power could. Yeah, feminism can look like a lot of different things, right? You've got everything from you to Dolly Parton. Right? <laughs> exactly, that's true. 
<laughs> exactly right. So um, can women's movements save the world? In in a nut in a nutshell, I would say yes. But <laughs> we have to we have to create an ecosystem where this change can take root. It's not going to happen. You know, the allies have to be there. We've got to keep that rock from rolling back. We've got to shine a light so that people aren't rolling these rocks in the darkness. So yes, they can save the world. But yeah, we have some find friends to help you roll the rock. <laughs> Find friends, help you roll a rock, shine a spotlight on those people who are doing it in some of the most difficult situations and where it may not look like what you think it should look like, but they're definitely doing the work. Um, and, you know, come together, solidarity. It's, it's going to be a, a really important component of, of having these movements uh, take root um, and, and change the world. Yeah. And so what's your one hope for change? I guess my hope is that, you know, our, our children, Mia, are not having this exact same conversation, but rather celebrating this moment as the turning point. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, that's why I want to be able to be here and, you know, come back in a hundred years and say, okay, we reached a tipping point. We reached a turning point. So what happened, you know, that did so justice. Here. We actually did save the world. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are we still here? Yeah. The earth's still here, right? You know, are we still here? Are we, you know, are we thriving? Are we, you know, are, is justice and human rights at the forefront of everything we're doing, of every policy consideration that, that we're taking? Um, we're looking for like actual systemic, holistic, sustainable change. Exactly. You know, justice, feminism, which I love that, uh, not just new feminism, right? No. Specific and more sophisticated that that will, I'm I'm persuaded. We're gonna save the world. We've got this. We're gonna save the world. Justice feminism. I think that's what we that should be our newest our next t-shirt. Justice feminism is gonna save the world. Yeah, exactly. We need the t-shirt, the hat, <laughs> mug. Things, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll inscribe it on our on our pearls on the backs. There exactly, you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> our jewelry. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Because it's for everyone. I mean, that's the thing, right? Justice is for everyone. You know, and I think that's that's been a really powerful and pivotal turn in feminism. It's like, no, it's it's about justice. It is just all about justice, us having rights. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to just say thank you because um, I love having these conversations. But like you, I really love that we're doing this with people from around the world, <laughs> and that you know it is something that people want to be talking about. So thank you so much for this conversation, and it's such just a perfect way to celebrate International Women's Day. I wanna thank Zocalo and the ASU Center on the Future of, Future of War for presenting this event. Um, and you can all visit Zocalo's website tomorrow to read a summary of what we talked about and short interviews with both Pardis and I. And you can also find this and all other talks on Zocalo's YouTube channel, website and podcast. Um, so I want to say thank you. And as one last question, um, who's your favorite feminist parties? That's such a hard question. I'm going to go with Audre Lorde. All right. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. Um, mine's personal. Mine's my aunt, who's a founder of women's studies at um, the South Korean Women's University. So she's my favorite feminist, but um, so many to choose from and such a great conversation. So thank you so much. for. Thank being you here. for having me, Mia. This was so wonderful. Like you said, what a great way to celebrate National Women's Day. Thank you so much.
Thank you.